The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm your host, Catherine Zox, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Melanie Young, breast cancer survivor and founder of The Connected Table in New York City, where Melanie advises wine, food, and lifestyles companies on building their brands. Uh, her new book, Getting Things Off My Chest, A Survivor's Guide to Staying Fearless and Fabulous in the Face of Breast Cancer, reflects her battle with breast cancer. Welcome to the show, Melanie. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, you were diagnosed in 2009, and as you say, you were scared to even share your diagnosis with coworkers, clients, and even some of your family. So, as you know, I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, Melanie, you've come a long way, baby. But <clears throat> quoting you, it took losing my breast to find my voice. So, what did you mean by that? Well, it's interesting. I'm a communication specialist, and here I am with one of the biggest, most challenging. Uh, things that happened in my life, and, and I couldn't communicate about it, or I had to learn to communicate in another way. Um, because I had my own company, and it is a company where you're in the public eye, and it happened to be on eating and drinking, I chose to keep my diagnosis private in my professional arena out of fear, underscore fear, that I would lose my business, my source of income, my husband and I worked together, and face, you know, potentially medical, you know, horrible debt. So I, I stayed quiet and really only told a very close network of friends who were my support group and some family members. Um, I grappled with letting my father know because when I was diagnosed, he was dying of cancer, and I didn't know whether that would hurt him or help him um, cope. So it took literally two years before I came out of my cancer closet to let my professional arena know that I had gone through it. So why do you think, because you were in a uh, entertainment kind of business and, and things were wine and food and, you know, happy kinds of things that you uh, were I think it's promoting? more than that, because as okay. I've spoke to many professional women, which I do, even if they have not had cancer, many say, you're so brave, I don't know what I would do. I was self-employed, so, you know, I was not protected by laws uh, in larger companies where you cannot discriminate. So I just saw it as, as, as a family member said, don't let people know it's a stigma. You can be perceived as damaged goods. And I had to rethink how I thought about that. And I discussed that in my book, Getting Things Off My Chest, that I am not damaged goods. I'm actually stronger for surviving cancer. And I'm not going to be fearful anymore of hiding things. What was the myself. turning point? For, well, then, what was the turning point for you? Because you didn't tell, or you told, didn't tell people at work. Very few friends concerned about telling your own father. What yes. made you decision? Well, I told Anything my staff. Happened? I had to tell my staff because I couldn't hide it, and they were like my family, and they were very, they were my support network as well. They kept my confidence. I needed them. I had six wonderful people working for me, and of course, my husband. 
um, the turning point was that I, about a year after I completed my treatment, uh, so it was 2011, I actually faced a profound sense of post-traumatic stress. It caught up with me emotionally at the loss of my breasts, facing the potential loss of my life, the loss of my father, the pressure of having to run a business full-time, full-face forward, producing events, having a positive look while going through everything like in a secret cancer life. It all came out, and I turned to writing as a way to deal with the stress, and finally, I called one of my clients that I really love, and I said, I need to tell you something that has just been weighing on my chest, and I told him, and he was shocked, and he said, I, I just, you, you, you're amazing, and, and at that point, I knew that I could come out and tell people, and it would be okay. You know, I was past, I was past the treatment, and I was fine, so I could reassure them that I was, you know, cancer-free, and it was behind Pull me. Pull that off, living the two lives, because, I mean, Melanie, mm-hmm. you had a double mastectomy. Did you have right. cancer in both breasts? Yes, I did. I had three tumors. I found the tumor in my left breast on a business trip in Tuscany. My mammogram nine months earlier was fine. And when I was diagnosed, I had three, as they say, positive carcinomas, which is you know, means cancer. And that was August. So you discovered it yourself. So yes, I was very vigilant about my mammograms. I was not one to skip. I was very good. I always examined my breasts. I'm very, very big advocate of self-examination and, and going and getting all your tests. Never, never you know, say I'm too busy. But I had it. As it turned out, and you know, I, I, when I was diagnosed, I was like, ah, my lifestyle did it to me. I'm eating too much rich food. I'm drinking too much wine. I'm too stressed. You know, I blamed myself. At the end of the day, um, I did test positive for the BRAC2 gene mutation, which probably was the tipping point of my cancer. Are you the only one? Now, I just want to get kind of a history because I know women are listening yeah. and thinking, oh, my God, okay, so you had the BRAC2 genetic mm-hmm. test, and you found out when you took the genetic testing. Did your mother have breast cancer and or I siblings? I have no family history of breast cancer. I have an Ashkenazi Jewish background. My father had prostate cancer and melanoma, and sadly he died after my second surgery, which was just crushing for me, which is another heartbreak on my chest. My grandfather had prostate cancer, and my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, uh, had pancreatic. And those are all tied to the BRAC2 gene mutation. However, 1 in 40 Ashkenazi Jewish women are diagnosed with um, have the BRAC, carry the BRAC2 mutation. We all have the, the, the gene, but... Some of us have a gene mutation, and I, I tested positive. I did not test until after treatment, and once I did test, I chose to have a prophylactic surgery to remove my ovaries and fallopian tubes because I had a higher risk of getting ovarian cancer. So what happens after this? Now, you had genetic testing, okay, mm-hmm. and you had your breast removed, and you had yes. chemotherapy and mm-hmm. or radiation. I assume you went through. I had five months of chemotherapy. Yeah. I did not choose radiation. I did not want the added stress on my body and heart, and I didn't think that the percentages that were offered to me of reducing my risk even further outweighed the, the potential risk to my body. I also underwent breast reconstruction, which is your choice, and reconstruction as of 1998 is covered by health insurance by federal law. Before 1998, it was not, which is shocking to me. So I underwent months of reconstruction as well, which is very important in rebuilding your body and your self-image. 
And in the context of being, I, well, I'm just thinking about as you're describing your story in the context of being sick, vulnerable, you have to make these sort of life decisions, which, and I want you to talk to us about that because, I mean, you have to decide whether you want to have reconciliation. Yes. But as you said, you have to decide, do I want radiation? Because I think there's a misconception sometimes on our part as women that, well, the doctor's going to tell me whether I need chemo and radiation or one or the other or both. Well, this is an important point because when you're diagnosed, you know, you become immediately lost, confused, and in a mental fog. Your mental, your cancer mental fog stops, starts, which is why I wrote this book. I wrote it like it is your guidebook to go to cancer land, like it's a journey you don't want to take. And I talk to readers about what to expect and the fact that you may not have chosen to have cancer, but from that point on, you have many choices on your treatment, how you want to treat yourself, which I think is very important, how you want to be perceived, which is the communications issue, and how you want to live your life so that you don't go back to that place called cancer land with a recurrence or, or a metastasis. So um, it's very important. And, and I, you know, it starts with uh, choosing your doctors and making sure you're comfortable with your medical team who's going to be with you for a very long time. Because uh, once so how you do finish you do treatment, that? you're with how them for a long that? time. Well, how do you do Good that? Good question. Because... Um, well, first of all, I'm a bu- I, I, no, I am a business person. I, I applied all my business training, understanding how to make smart decisions, I applied it all to my cancer. I became the, the CEO of my body, and I first did the most practical thing. I, mind, I minded the money. I asked my health insurance. You know, I made sure that I understood it and that the doctors I interviewed participated in my health insurance because I did not want to go out of pocket. So that was the first dividing line. Do you participate in my insurance plan? And if they said no, I didn't care if they were the most famous doctor on the New York Magazine list often next to the next, you know, center. Then I interviewed three doctors based on recommendations from friends and the fact that the hospitals took my insurance plan. And at the end of the day, because I chose, once I realized reconstruction was an option, and it happens immediately after your mastectomy in the same surgery, so you can't be wheeled to another hospital, I chose the team that I had the most confidence in based on how well they communicated with me. Uh, were they direct and looked me in the eye? Did they spend time with me? And, you know, did they have, you know, was I confident in them? They were all excellent. I ended up um, choosing um, a team at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I, I went there. I was given, like, a, a, a Memorial Sloan Kettering card. I felt like I was a member. It was efficient. I liked that. I wanted my cancer treatment to be a thorough and efficient and, you know, you know, also just kind to me, and they were very good. The Evelyn Lauder Breast Cancer Center had just opened. It was like the four seasons of treatment centers. And well, you know, it was like going to a hotel, not a, a hospital. But like, as you described a little bit earlier, you said, I am a businesswoman. I take yes. charge. Uh, you know, and so, but what do you say to women who are not quite in your position? Like, you're very well organized. You're used to doing that. You're used to, you know, after you kind of stand back and assess and analyze the problem, then you are able to kind of, able to navigate the system, but there are a lot of women who are not necessarily or don't have your skills. Now, do you cover that like in your book? You know uh, what? If you run a household, you manage a household budget, you manage your children and make sure they get all the needs, you know, their, their medical attention, you need to apply it to yourself. Too many women put everybody else first and don't make themselves and their health a priority. It's practical sense. If you get confused, what I, I advocate and I do every day is I make checklists. 
That is the simplest way to get organized. I, I don't do long checklists. I do five things I want to accomplish today. And that really helped me. I made lists of questions to ask every doctor. I made lists of what I needed to address each day so you don't get overwhelmed. And that was very important when I went through chemo and my brain was affected, and that helps you with the confusion. It's, it's, it's checklists, and they're very easy to do. And I also, um, you know, you've got to just tackle it like it's, like it's like a job. Cancer, having cancer is, is like another job or assignment or a community project or whatever. If you're not, you know, if you, if you're, if you are on a charity board or a PTA, it's another part of your life you now have to manage. But and you how have to do you think keep Melody from feeling depressed or feeling down or have to be certain points, peaks and, oh, and yes. highs and, and lows? And so what do you do? And I'm assuming you're covering this in the survivor's guide. I had guide. incredible bouts of highs and lows. Um, it was, you know, I, I mean, I, the book says uh, getting things off my chest, a guide to staying fearless and fabulous. There were days I was not feeling so fabulous. Um, and I took it a bit more easy. I, I cut back my pace. I always started every day, even the days where I was in the most pain, taking a walk, going to my local YMCA and just sitting on a reclining bike and moving my legs, getting my heart rate up and, and, and moving. That seemed, and even to this day, to get my mood elevated and my energy going. It was like getting your engine running. And I always made sure I ate properly and drank a lot of water. And that seemed to help in getting enough sleep. Also learning to delegate. Don't try to do everything yourself. Know when to lean on and ask for help. There are many peer support groups out there. If you don't have anyone to help you, who can help you find people to go with you to doctor's appointments, you never go to a doctor's appointment alone. You always want another set of ears. But How did your husband fit into the picture? Because he was, I mean, he, uh, my husband yeah. David was my caregiver and my gatekeeper. He uh, went with me to every appointment. Uh, we worked together, so we both faced the challenges of how to manage the business end of things and keep that going while keeping me healthy and keeping definitely keeping my mood elevated because it was you know I was dealing with the death of my father at the same time. I mean, it was horrible. Um, he, I assigned him, this is my PR skills, I assigned him to be my <laughs> spokesperson, and he was my gatekeeper so that when all the well-wishers of families and friends who did know, and I have a lot of friends, he talked to them. He communicated whatever I wanted them to, to hear so that I didn't have to deal with emails and calls. I could be quiet. Uh, I make a living on the phone or on the computer, constantly in communication, Suddenly, I needed to pull back and be quiet so I could reflect and really think and digest what is happening to me and how can I process that. And that's very important that you allow time to process what's happening to you. 2009, you were diagnosed. This mm-hmm. is 2013. What about the fear that the cancer is going to return? Is that always something that's in the back of your mind? Or, you know, I've spoken to other women who may have something hurts here or they don't feel quite right, and immediately they relate it to, well, maybe I'm the cancer's coming back, which is not necessarily or most, you know, not so. So is that something that is kind you of... You know, that's pervade? a really good question, and I grapple with it because I do... Yes, I do worry. I mean, I tested positive for the BRAC2 genetic mutation. I have a, I have a family history of pancreatic cancer. Anytime my stomach bloats, anytime I worry, I worry about melanoma because my I have my I have my dad's skin. I have I am my father, 
and I saw what he went through. So I am vigilant about how I take care of myself. I always wore, I always wore and continue to wear the best sunscreen. I get my skin checked. I get more sleep. I exercise. I changed my diet dramatically, and I'm a food industry professional. That's a big deal. Um, I really believe that I am healthier today as a result, and I will have, you know, I will do whatever I can to reduce any risk of recurrence or another cancer. You can't, there are no guarantees in life. So you do How do you, you become can. or keep yourself, because here you are, obviously, you are, in, uh, you know, a very um, sort of, I, I keep going back to the word, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a entertainment kind of business, it's happy, mm-hmm. it's, how do you keep from becoming a professional patient so that there's a balance? You are taking care well, of yourself. You know, how do you, in, in anything in life, you know, you can, you, you can see the, the you know, there's a, the cup half full and there's the cup half empty. There's a, the pessimist who sees the cup half empty, the optimist who sees it half full. I'm the opportunist. I drink the water. I seize the opportunities and go for them. I, 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 even during cancer, before cancer, during and after, I am not going to let anyone define how I live my life. That is my mantra. I, I live life on my terms and I follow my gut and who I am. And, and I, I believe in purpose. I believe in giving back. I believe in being part of the community. That's how I was raised. So I don't have time to dwell on you know, will it come back or what if? I, I'm constantly keeping my mind active and my body active so that I don't dwell. And I think that's a problem. A lot of women have told me their mothers just lie on the sofa and feel sorry for themselves. They don't want to go out anymore. They're shut in. That's not healthy. You need to find a purpose. You need to think about getting outside of yourself and find a passion, something that gives you pleasure so that you can enjoy life. You can't live with the sword of Damocles over your head. Melanie, you're traveling around the country and you're talking yes. to a lot of different yes. women, you know, promoting your book. And so what are some of the, the stories that you get back from that? I'm sure some are similar to yours, but others may be very different. And, uh, and obviously you have a lot to offer them in I terms hear, of I experience. hear three different types of stories. I hear, uh, obviously, from, and I interviewed uh, for the book, many survivors who are doing amazing things. They got through the cancer. They found a new purpose for life. Some have done things. You know, as I say when I talk, you don't have to go start a foundation or run a book or a line of products for women with cancer. You can just go. You don't have to be superwoman. You can just go back to your life before cancer and enjoy it with a greater appreciation. I learned to spend more time with family and not just always going out to the next restaurant. I've learned to enjoy home-cooked meals with my husband and live simpler, you know, out of necessity as well as just dialing down. Um, I also hear from women who say my mother, usually it's my mother, or my older sister, usually it's an older woman, they, they can't get over their cancer. They can't put it behind them. I tell people, you... Don't let people say, get past your cancer. You need, to get, you need to deal with it and process it yourself. However, if you are stuck in your cancer world, your post-cancer world, and in your fog, you may need to go seek professional help to help you get out of it because you need to get back into your life. It's like Elsa, the lion in Born Free, going out into the wild. You need to be able to go back into the wild and, and try to live without fear um, because fear is not healthy. And then finally, I meet a lot of uh, minority women 
and this is, you know, uh, who say that, you know, or men who say their mothers have died, and it reminds me, and also young patients, that cancer is not an old, breast cancer is not an old lady's disease. Even though the average age for diagnosis is between 50 and 60, a greater number of younger women under 40 are getting breast cancer, and they're trying to understand why, and it affects women of all cultures all around the world, and not everybody has access to the best medical help. I just read a devastating article that ran in the New York Times last week about a woman with um, breast cancer in Uganda and the situation there and how she was a fearful, to, fearful to go and get help because of cultural embarrassment. And there's a lot of education that needs to be done to help women understand they should never be embarrassed that they have a cancer diagnosis. They should never be embarrassed to go have someone look at their body and see what the lump is. Because if you wait, you could die. Yeah. Oh, you, have to, you have to accept it. You have to, I mean, I don't like to use the word embrace it, but I guess you do. You don't want to be in denial you at any stage. You have to be stage. proactive about proactive, your health. I mean, that's yeah. the underlying message. You have to be proactive. If you see something... Go seek help about it. I had um, well, some I, lumpy, yeah. a lumpy area. It looked like a rash um, about a year and a half after my diagnosis on my arm. And I said to my husband, this is weird. And he said, oh, it'll go away. That's my husband. I said, you know, I am going to go check it out. I was sent to the emergency room. They thought it could have been a blood clot. It ended up being cellulitis, which also is not good. But if I had waited and taken some aspirin, who knows what could have happened? So, so you, you, have you don't act. self-diagnose. You, you be proactive. It's not hypochondria. It's smart management of your health. Well, you've been rewarded for being proactive. So let's get into that because you recently won an award, which is very yeah. impressive. And uh, talk to us about that. It's the 2013 Handcraft Heroes. Now, what is that and how did you get, you know, talk to us about uh, how, the, obviously, as you've been describing yourself, I can understand how it came about. But what is the well, award? Well, this is an inaugural award. I'm honored to be one of three women in the United States who are Handcraft Heroes. The award is presented by um, a, a wine company called Handcraft Artisan Wine Collection out of California to w- everyday women who are doing inspiring work to raise awareness for breast cancer, early detection, and patient support, which certainly is everything I talk about in my book and my mission now as an advocate. Um, I was just I was just told about it uh, on Friday, as a matter of fact. So I'm incredibly honored, and it just you know makes the journey and this part of the journey a little sweeter for me. You're being all the work you not only the yeah the work that you are not just done are doing that you continue well, to I'm do. I'm at the beginning of a new journey. I mean, I have been for 20 years. I ran a successful wine and food and public relations firm. I started the James Beard Awards. I produced events all over the country. I actually, at the end of 2011, decided to close that company. It was called M. Young Communications. I closed it for three reasons. I did no longer wanted the pressure of running a public relations agency. It was very stressful, and I realized I didn't want that stress in my life. Two, I didn't want my name on the door. That was a lot of pressure. Three, my father, who was part of my business, died, and I just... It just part of it went with me, and I decided to rebrand myself and become a consultant under a new company called The Connected Table, which is more socially conscious and socially connected. And it was like freeing the old Melanie away and coming out as a new one, and and the new Melanie is an advocate for women's health. I want women to know they, they have to take charge of their health. 
They have to understand that it's okay to put themselves as a priority. It's not being selfish. Selflessness, you know, could be dangerous. You have to be good to yourself so you can be better for those around you. Say to women who say, oh, well, I'm, uh, I, I'm, now I'm glad, or I don't know if they use the word glad, that I was diagnosed with breast cancer because it changed my life and I appreciate things more. Um, true or not true for you? Uh, you know, people say that I, I you know, breast cancer was a gift. It was not a gift. It was a, it was a bad joke on my body. It, 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 it was a horrible year. I call it my year of living chemically and surgically. But I believe, you know, maybe it's my, my own training. You take something bad and you find a way to turn it around and reframe it so good comes out of it. There's lessons to be learned in everything. I have taken lessons from every failure, and I've had plenty, in my life and thought, how can I do something to make this a lesson not only for myself but to teach others? And you have to do that. You can't dwell on the negative. You have, again, as my dad always said, half full, half empty, or in my case, drink it up and move it forward. Yeah. Which is what you've done in getting things mm-hmm. off my chest. I'm mentioning the book again, A Survivor's Guide to Staying Fearless and Fabulous in the Face of Breast Cancer. Mm-hmm. What about, uh, that's the book. We can buy it online, books yes. everywhere. But also a website, yours or anyone else's that we should be familiar with that would help my us. My website to, to- is MelanieYoung.com. That's my personal website for the book. And my blog within it is Getting Things Off My Chest, which is separate from my business website, which is The Connected Table. You can also follow me at Mighty Melanie. Um, I'm going to be continuing speaking, and, and, and I'm actually writing a proposal for my next book, which is to help all women be fear, fearless and fabulous forever, because I'm seeing a lot of things happening as I, as I age. Admittedly, I'm learning to embrace my age, and I want to help women understand how they can stay strong and relevant and healthy through all stages of their life. And uh, that was a big lesson I learned from breast cancer, because really breast cancer basically said, you know, if all my panic attacks and rashes and other bloating and all my stress I was carrying during running my company wasn't enough, cancer basically said, Melanie, this, okay, this is it. This is your final warning. (laughs) You need to change your life. You need to be healthier. You need to slow down a bit and reset and it was like a computer that was going to blow up. I had to reset, and cancer made me reset. And sometimes we all have to do that, and it's a healthy thing to do. Uh, but, it, you know, it wasn't the cancer, was it, that made you reset? You reset the cancer. I mean, some people get cancer, yeah. but they don't reset. I mean, you I took reset it upon during yourself. cancer. I basically said, I'm not looking this at this as a cancer journey. I'm going to look at this as a... And this is Melanie reframing how I visualize in my head. I'm going, to go to, I'm going to pretend that chemo is going to spa treatments, and I'm going to go in at 5 and call it chemo cocktail hour and bring friends, and we can have social visits while I'm getting the drain. And chemo is, and, and somebody said to me, chemo is not toxins going in my body. It's, it's cleansing fluids going in to get the cancer out. So it's a reframe, and then when I would leave chemo, I would go home, I would put on the most beautiful, unscented, you know, healthy oils and creams and lotions and just pretend I had just gone to the spa and crawl in bed and get a good night's sleep so that I would be fresh in the morning. So I, I would treat myself every time I went in for a surgery or chemo and say, what can I do to feel beautiful when this experience is over inside and out? 
And it was Great. just how you think versus, oh, this is going to be dreadful and I'm going to sleep and crawl on a ball. I was very careful how I ate so I would not throw up. I, I said, what can I do to put good foods in my body? So it was like a cleansing process. Well, I think you make it obviously very positive. There are choices. You're putting yourself right. in control, and one has choices. Women have choices. Getting Things Off My Chest, or Survivor's Guide to Staying Fearless and Fabulous in the Face of Breast Cancer. Melanie Young, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Well, thank you so much. It's been yeah. a pleasure. And, yeah. you know, I just want everybody, every woman to never have fear, to stay fearless and fabulous. And life will throw all of us roadblocks. And we just have to find the best detours around them. Well said. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your host. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Coming up next is Dr. Susan Forward, Ph.D., and her new book is Mothers Who Can't Love, A Healing Guide for Daughters. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zock, your host of the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me is New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Susan Forward, PhD, one of the nation's leading therapists, uh, besides being a bestselling author and a sought-after lecturer. Her new book is Mothers Who Can't Love, a Heal Daughters. Welcome to the show, Dr. Forward. Nice Thank to have you, you on this and morning. Thank you. And please call me Susan. I'm very okay. informal. <laughs> All right. Susan. Well, okay, Susan, you say that it's an old cliche that women tend to marry their fathers, but mm-hmm. the and but and I, reading some of your PR stuff, which I think is really right on target, the more eye-opening truth is that they often marry their mothers, and uh, which is what your book is all about. Uh, and when a mother is unloving, a girl can develop a high tolerance for mistreatment, choosing partners in situations in adult life that echo childhood patterns of caretaking people. 
security. So even though some mothers appear to be loving at times, birthday parties, coming to school events, they're not really. And they really have these uh, more than unsatisfying relationships with their daughters, but really dysfunctional. So, yeah, and traumatizing. And traumatizing. Okay. So you've divided them up into several different categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, starting with the narcissistic mother. Which I think uh, is in many ways the most recognizable the narcissistic mother is the mother around whom the world must revolve. She is insatiable in her demands for attention, adulation, always being first in everything, uh, which of course makes her very often very competitive uh, with her daughter. And it, it's so sad because what happens is there's no room in the spotlight, there's no room in the sun for her daughter. Uh, she will, well, I'll tell you an uh, anecdote out of my own life, because uh, I had a severely narcissistic mother. Uh, I was playing the piano once at a party, and, uh, you know, it was just party piano, and we were all singing and everything, and my mother comes over, and she sits down, and she literally pushed me off the bench. To, she almost put me on the floor to the very end of the bench, and she said, oh, for heaven's sakes, I can play much better than that. I, I can make it much more lively and cheerful. And I thought, you know, that is such a good metaphor, such a good visual for what this is all about with narcissistic mothers. You get pushed out of the way because she needs to shine all the time. And these are mothers also who has, have a very limited ability to love. They don't have compassion. They don't have empathy because everything is um, processed in terms of how it affects them. I mean, literally, I have heard people say, my husband died. How could he do that to me? Um, and, and, you know, it's how could he do that to me? Me. I must be always the center. Well, do you think that we are raising more narcissistic mothers, you know, perhaps than, than there used to be? I mean, because I, I sort of, I think I, I see that more in our culture, that this is something that we kind of nourish, this narcissism. But, uh, but, but you know, before you answer that question, what did you feel like when your mother pushed you off the bench and said, oh, that I, better than I, you? I, I mean, felt, what was the gut? First of all, the yeah. first thing I felt was bewilderment. What did she do? The second thing I felt was rage. And uh, then, of course, you're not supposed to get mad at your mother. So I had to kind of stuff it and laugh it off and pretend everything was fine. And I was just a cauldron inside. Was, was this a, I'm assuming this has to be a pattern, though, that this is how your relationship... Of course it's a pattern. Yeah. It was a pattern. It was always, I'm better, and I will prove to the world I'm better, and I will diminish you, put you down, criticize you, humiliate you, so that I can shine. But then, are anyone who's listening to the show or women who are listening to the show, daughters, are going to say, okay, Susan, yeah, but here's Dr. Susan Forward, PhD, mm-hmm. uh, preeminent therapist, uh, New York Times bestselling author. She must, your mom must have done something right or somebody did something right. Um, I did something right, Catherine. <laughs> yeah. It was a question of in spite of, and it was a question of really digging deep into myself and with some professional help to find my courage, my spirit, and it took a long time. I'm not pretending that any of this is easy. I mean, this is in many ways the last taboo to really 
take on mother because mother is a sacred cow. And what you will hear is, don't you dare say anything bad about your mother. Oh, my God, how can you talk about your mother that way? So that daughters who want to get validation and have somebody say, that must have been rough, or, gee, that was that was not very nice, or that was awful, um, have a very hard time finding the validation that they need, and as a result, they end up blaming themselves. If something bad is happening between my mother and me, it's got to be my it's fault. It's your fault. Were you able to recognize, is your mother still living? No. Were you able, I, I mean, I, how long I couldn't ago have did- written the book if she was still living. I, the yeah. book, you know, it, it really freed me to be able to write the book. Were you able to ever reconcile with her? I mean, it's very difficult oh, dealing with... 600 yeah. times, you know, on and off, on and yeah. off, on and off. And then finally, she did something that was so heinous and so um, treacherous to me that I... And this was very, very late in her life. She died in her 90s. Um, that I finally said, this is it. I will not be seeing you again. And this time, I really really mean it um so but that is not what what other daughters have to do you have many choices in, in a troubled relationship one you can accept them accept things the way they are uh which i don't recommend because it's, you're paying a terrible price for it two you can negotiate for a healthy relationship if your mother is at all available for that because a lot of these mothers don't know how cruel and how hurtful their behavior is. You can have a tea party relationship, which a lot of women opt for, which means basically that you don't ever make yourself vulnerable to your mother. You stay on rather surface, superficial things. You talk about movies. Uh, you talk about and and Beatrice's gallbladder. You don't talk about things like. I just broke up with this guy, and I'm really hurting because she's going to use that against you. And the so no toxic issues. It's light and lively. What's that? Lively. I said no toxic issues. You yeah, keep it light no, and lively. No emotionally loaded issues. Yeah. And yeah. then, of course, the last option is one that it took me many, many years to get to. And I, I have a lot of self-reproach that I didn't do it sooner because I could have had a lot more peaceful and um, calm and, and, and serene years had I had the courage to do it sooner. The last option is you have to make the decision. It's my mother or my mental health, and I can't have a good life with my mother in it. Toughest decision anybody ever has to make. I have to ask you, at what stage of your life, how old were you and how old was she? Because she lived to be in her 90s, so uh-huh. how old? Um, let's not talk numbers. Let's say I was well into senior citizenhood. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not, no ages. Okay, I got it. I just, yeah. you know, I didn't know whether it was. But we were, you know, we were both quite advanced in age. And um, in that, maybe that made it easier. I don't know. But um, it's never easy. And I'm not going to pretend it is because you are absolutely swamped with guilt with a sense of being a bad person, and I fortunately had a very, very good support system around me. I have a fabulous daughter. I have good friends, and they were all totally on my team. 
So in order to do that, I think you do need that, like you oh, say. Oh, yeah, and a good yeah. therapist, too, by yeah, the way, a good therapist, yeah. So you, you, in your particular case, you feel like you did the right thing. That's what worked for you. Oh, that's what you had to you do. You know, I can't tell you. It was like having a, a two-ton boulder lifted off my shoulder because I always had to pretend. I always had to pretend everything was fine when it wasn't. And then I'd get these. I, I told my mother once, your mouth should be registered as a lethal weapon uh, because her her digs and her snipes and her flirting with my boyfriends and her uh, need to, again, as I say, push me out of the way, uh, was so intense and, and so hurtful and bewildering because why is my mother behaving this way? I haven't done anything. Yeah, well, it was so not related to you. Obviously, it's related yeah, to yeah, her mother. Her own insecurities, her own hungers, yeah. her own sense of deprivation. She was not happy with my father ever. And so it and all came out in, in yeah, these that... uh, very toxic ways. Yeah, the, I was uh, my sort of. I was curious as to your father. Where did he fit into the picture, or did he, or was he just pushed aside? No, um, <laughs> that's another long story, which we'll go into in another show. All right, all right. All right. So we'll get to the next who can't love. Okay, we'll go on to the overly enmeshed mother because mm-hmm. I see that as a. That's the very common. The mother I, is the mother who is really very empty inside, has not much of a life, and turns to her daughter to fill up that life, to make the life for her, wants to participate in everything that the daughter has. Oh, you've been invited to a party on Saturday? Well, call them and tell them you're going to take your mom with you. I'm sure it'll be fine. And really intrudes and invades, and, and it, I think of it almost as an octopus with tendrils just wrapping around you, and it's suffocating, and you often feel that you can't breathe, and you're not allowed to have any life of your own, and you're not allowed to individuate and separate. Don't forget, parenting is the only love, the goal of which is separation, not more enmeshment or fusion or uh, being together all the time. If you've done a good job as a parent, your child will be able to stand on on her own two feet, make her own life, have her own ideas, her own thoughts, her own feelings, her own ambitions, and not be enmeshed with you. But I've noticed more and more as maybe an outgrowth of these parents, these helicopter parents. Mm-hmm, I've that heard it, that term a yeah, lot. Yeah, it, it, it sort of encouraged this this enmeshment, particularly with mothers, and uh, I see mother. I have sons, so I have three sons. But I see my friends even with their daughters. They hovering difficult. Well, even if they're living with their boyfriends, or yeah. they they're calling their mother every half an hour, talking about the men they're living with, <laughs> get, getting advice about things that really I think is none of their business. Right. But, yeah, it's it's something, and I, I am judgmental, I have to say, but so I, I think this enmeshed mother is really kind of encouraged. It's a two-way street, isn't it? Because obviously what the daughter gets out of it is a false and erroneous belief that this is what love is supposed to feel like. We are, oh, my mother and I are so close. I tell her everything, uh, and it's not healthy. It, because the older you get, the more you have to form your own life. Your mother is not going to be your best friend. 
Yeah, well, and it also takes away the uh, the energy and the attachment from the person, whether it's a straight relationship or a gay relationship, whoever it is, but that yeah. adult relationship yeah. because you're using the energy, you know, to connect with your mother. Where oh, I've had some- so many clients where one or the other partner will say something about, you know, she or he is is more in love with her mother than than she is with me. I I feel like I'm second or third on the list of priorities. That's, as you can imagine, a very damaging thing to a partnership. How do you, what's the first step? Let's just start with the first step. We don't have to continue with the whole therapy process. No, I don't think we have time. (laughs) We don't have time, but breaking away from that, what would be the first thing one could do or that you would suggest as a therapist? Well, in many ways, the um, and we didn't get to cover all the categories, and I'll just go through them very quickly. We have, well, we have mother, time after this to do. Yeah, we've got plenty. We have plenty of time to go through. After okay, it's yeah. the mother who needs mothering, the helpless, the dependent, the addicted, the uh, depressed, the mother who is so preoccupied with her own unhappiness and her problems that uh, she really becomes quite infantile and gets into that very dramatic role reversal with her daughter, where the daughter is supposed to mother her, take care, oh, the only happiness I have is with you. Tell me what to do. I'm so depressed. Should I divorce your father or shouldn't I? And all of a sudden, this young girl is put into a position that is much too burdening and heavy for her. I've had clients who at eight years old had to cook dinner for the whole family, had to actually raise their younger siblings, and they get cheated of a childhood. They don't get to be kids. They don't get to get out, run outside and play and giggle and be silly and irresponsible. They have to be so serious and so responsible and so um, in charge, which, as you can imagine, forms a, pers- a perfect personality for a caretaker, a caregiver, a rescuer, a person who takes everything on their own shoulders, whether it's in a relationship or at work, and it's a very unhealthy uh, dynamic between a mother and daughter. A daughter has to feel safe. She has to know that there is a loving and caring authority figure there who will do her her job and then the girl is free to do hers. But in it in your book, Mother who, Mothers Who Need Mothering, one mm-hmm. of the, the type of mother who does that, not always, can be a mother who suffers from depression or oh, an addiction, yeah. alcoholism. So first, in order to kind of break that tie uh, of the childlike mother, as you describe it, you have to, what, help them? I mean, there are a lot of pieces to this, because if you have a mother who's addicted, then that has to you be taken You can't care. help them. They have to get Just, professional help. You can't be your mother's caregiver, caretaker, and therapist. Uh, and if your mother is not willing to do that, uh, some may be, uh, but there are many who will say, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not crazy. I'm not going to go see the therapist. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not an alcoholic as she consumes her third bottle of wine for the day. Um, I'm not depressed. I'm just in kind of a down mood and a lot of the time. Uh, there's so much denial on the part of the mother. And if you run into that wall, and it is a, a brick wall, 
denial is probably the most powerful defense there is. And what will happen then is you again have a choice. Can I have the kind of life that I want with my mother in it and with this need that I have, this obligation that I feel to take care of her? And the answer is no, you can't. All right, let's go on now to the control freak mother. You, I, I don't know. I think everybody to... knows what that yeah. means. Yeah, my way the or the difference? highway. Uh, yeah, the, true. But what's the difference? Because there are nuances, obviously, like Susan, between the overly enmeshed mother and the control freak mother. Because an overly enmeshed mother is also controlling. So, but there is a difference, or you make a distinction. Well, the book. overly enmeshed mother is a lot more manipulative. The control freak is very out front. You know, do it this way. No, you can't do that. You can't have that. Uh, we're going to be doing this. Uh, you can't go out with that guy. He's from another religion. I don't like that. And you will make me very unhappy if you do that. And I will punish you. Um, the enmeshed mother looks loving. That's the big uh, paradox here. Oh, my mother wants to be with me all the time. She's so crazy about me. It's, oh, it's, I, I feel so lucky I've got such a loving mother. And uh, I think that the difference is that the control freak is a lot more overt and that the enmeshed mother is a lot more covert. It would seem to me then that the control freak mother would be an easier one to deal with. Or, or Depends be able on how to... old you are. You can't go out and get a job at age seven. No, <laughs> that's true. So then what do you do? Well, what, as a child, there's not much you can do because children are helpless and dependent. And that's what, unfortunately, a lot of mothers take advantage of. They know that they've got that child under their thumb for a certain amount of time. And I've had a lot of clients who got out at 16 and 17 or went and moved in with um, another relation as soon as they were able to kind of stand on their own two feet. They couldn't get away fast enough. Um, on the other hand, there are many women who stay in those relationships and stay in them long after they're adults, and mothers run the show. They, they decide everything for them, where they're going to live. No, you can't take that job. It's too far away. I'll never see you. And, uh, you know, that would absolutely make me angry. Uh, the last thing in the world we ever want to do is make our mothers angry or disapproving or upset with us. And so control freaks have a lot of power, and the important thing is to disempower them by learning to set limits. This is not okay for me. Uh, I am not willing to do that by learning to set boundaries. Uh, you know, you wouldn't live in a house that didn't have some kind of windows and doors to protect you. And that's what it's like to live with a mother with no boundary, who has no boundaries. And so emotional boundaries, boundaries are, I'm interrupting you because yeah. I just want to kind of clarify that. Emotional boundaries is, are just as important as physical boundaries. In, in many ways more you so. Have, more so. And if yeah. we were all able to keep those in balance, the world would be a pretty good place to live in, I think. The yeah. Emotional boundaries. Well, uh, it, which takes us to the, the last one, because I don't want to leave it out. You, you t- mothers who neglect, betray, and batter. I mean, yeah. those, that's more severe. That's, that's the darkest category. But, yeah. you know, Catherine, I used to think when I first started, it was relatively inexperienced, and that was like 35 years ago, um, that it was dads, it was fathers, it was men who did the abusing. 
it never occurred to me that a mother would be abusive, uh, maybe verbally, because that's what I experienced, certainly, and uh, maybe in punitive ways, but physical abuse or even sexual abuse from a mother, oh, it's unheard of. And as I got more experienced and, and had more and more people come to me, I realized, and, and I also did, by the way, a lot of hospital work, so I'm working with a pretty disturbed population. And in the backgrounds of those people was so much physical abuse from their mothers. And boys as well uh, are very often battered by their mothers. And the other partner let's say it's the mother who's doing the abusing, uh, stands by and does nothing. And this, to me, is another form of abuse because she's colluding in, in, in this terrible uh, experience for her child. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Uh, how would it look if I got a divorce? There have never been a divorce in this family. Uh, and she becomes helpless. She becomes infantile. And as a result, the abuser gets to have his way all the time. And if she doesn't become helpless and dependent and and submissive, he's going to start on her. And so the child becomes the sacrificial lamb. Yeah, I, I, my my experience was that was many years ago working at a uh, state prison actually in New mm. Jersey, and a lot of these prisoners who were rapists and who had assaulted women and you know had you know serious crimes obviously stemmed back to their relationship horrendous things that their mothers did to them as you yes. yeah physical emotional yes. sexual um, and it came from their mothers not their fathers necessarily um, and we reenact and oh by the way I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of men who have read this book and I have a lot of friends who have read this book who are, who are men have told me that the book is as relevant and applicable to men as it is to women the reason that I chose to focus on daughters is because that's your role model. That's how you identify yourself is by uh, bonding with your mother. And if that, as as a, as a young girl, and if that bond is afraid uh, or really never made, you're going to have a lot of problems finding out who you are. Whereas men in order to define their masculinity, push away from their mothers. So it was that difference that made me focus on daughters. But it is equally relevant for men. Well, and and, and in in ending uh, uh, our conversation, Mm -hmm. um, I want to mention the book again, Mothers Who Can't Love, A Healing Guide for Daughters. With a lot of healing in it. I want to make that point. This is not just a description of war stories. The second half of the book is all exercises and letter writing and things you can do to start and, and go further with the healing process. And you can go to SusanForward.com for more information about you and about your book. Yes. Susan, thanks so much for being on the show today. Dr. Susan Forward, Ph.D. It's been great talking to you. And, oh, wonderful uh, interview, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. 
Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.